There is a handout that we're going to use today labeled the Antichrist in Daniel. I've laid it out in order of the prophecy in prophecy in chapter 11 and 12. The middle column gives you all of the other parallel passages or not or most of the other parallel passages in Daniel. Because one of the things I want us to see is how every single prophecy in Daniel lines up together. Every single one of them is saying the same thing. They're just they, they're just talking about different pieces of it. And I threw in a couple of extra you know scripture references that were helpful. And then over on the first column, the, the farthest to the left, is just a little blurb that gives you kind of what happens in the order that it happens. Okay, so that you can just quickly find your place. This is the grid that I promised you way back when we had done our last grid. I told you we would come out of Daniel with a kind of a summary that you could then carry with you into the study of Revelation. This is it. And this grid will take us all the way through the end of Daniel. It's chapter 11 and 12. As we go through chapters 11 and 12, we're going to compare them to the other visions that we've seen in Daniel so that we can really understand how consistent every single vision is. That every single one is exactly in order. It is exactly in sequence. It's giving you just a little bit different perspective um, on the situation, but it's amazing to me how consistent each of these visions are. This grid summarizes it does the fourth kingdom basically. It, it skips the the kingdoms that have already been the Medo Babylonian, Medo Persian, and Greek, um, and uh, and starts kind of at the end of the Greek kingdom and and takes you entirely through that fourth and last kingdom. But I want to set the stage for you a little bit. So the very first thing that we know about the fourth kingdom, aside from it being terrible, <laughs> is and scary and awesome and, and, and very large, uh, is that it eventually becomes a federated world government. And the places we know that are from the second chapter of Daniel, verses 41 and 43, that talk about how it, it's the vision of the statue and how it's a, when you get down to the feet and the toes, it's a divided kingdom and the feet and the toes are made of iron and clay. And, but they don't really stick together because the clay is brittle and the iron is strong and it says and they mix with the seed of men, but they don't really adhere to each other. So by the time we get down to the feet and the toes, which is the very end of the fourth kingdom, there's govern, world government is just a federation. It's not it's not unified under one ruler. And we also know that it will be worldwide because in Daniel chapter seven, verse 23 tells us that that fourth beast will devour the whole earth. One of the interesting things I thought was an AP news article this week on the 14th that came across the wire saying the Iranian president had said that they're going to annihilate Israel. Unequivocally going to annihilate Israel. Here's some quotes out of that article. The president of Iran again, again lashed out at Israel on Friday and said it was heading toward annihilation just days after Tehran raised fears about its nuclear activities by saying it successfully enriched uranium for the first time. 
The land of Palestine, he said, referring to the British-mandated territory that includes all of Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank, will soon be freed. On Tuesday, Iran announced it had successfully enriched uranium, a significant step toward the large-scale production required for making nuclear weapons. The UN Security Council has given Iran until April 28th to cease enrichment, but Iran has rejected the demand. So there you just have a picture of, of the iron and the clay, the, the, the impotency of that federated kind of government, but that's where we're moving, okay? And it is, and whether this is the one we end up with or whether we have, you know, some more back and forth for thousands of years before we get to the final federation, we know from Scripture that we will end up in, in this kind of a government. Now, was Babylon in Iran or Iraq? There is a, I gave you a map. I gave you a map. If you look on this map, and because we're going to find this interesting, you can see um, the big piece is Saudi Arabia, of course, and then you can see Iraq just above Saudi Arabia. Arabia. Um, Baghdad is where Babylon is. Babylon is 30 miles, I think, south of Baghdad. Okay, it's just nothing there. It's a train stop, basically. But Baghdad is where Babylon is. Iran is to the east, and then to the east of that is Afghanistan and Pakistan, and then to the east of that would be India. To the north and west of Iraq, you see Syria. Okay. Now, Syria is one of the four regions or empires that came, arose out of the Greek empire, remember? Egypt was in the south. Syria was in the north. Then if you go up around where Turkey is, that's Asia Minor. That's what used to be called Asia Minor. So that would have been the kingdom of Lysimachus. And then if you go further to the left where it says Greece and Bulgaria, Thessalonica, and all that around in the upper left-hand corner is um, Macedonia. Okay, what, what would have been called Macedonia back then. Egypt and Syria, you can see the gap in between Egypt and Syria that is now taken up by the Sinai, by, I'm sorry, Israel and Jordan. That whole area, Israel and Jordan, was constantly in dispute between Syria and Egypt during the time, during the Greek Empire. Sometimes it was in Syria, sometimes it was in Egypt. It went back and forth. Finally ended up being part of Syria. But God always saw Palestine as its own separate place. Okay. And we saw that last week where the references to the kings of the north and the kings of the south were from the perspective of Palestine. So when they talked about the kings of the north in the first part of uh, Daniel chapter 11, they were talking about Syria. When they were talking about the kings of the south, they were talking about Egypt. Now, Syria itself expanded to the east numerous times. All right. At at, at various points, it went as far east as, as India. Okay, so the exact boundaries of the north, all right, from the perspective of Syria, you can't necessarily go by the boundaries that we see modern day. All right, okay. so it, it covers a much larger area than that from a biblical point of view. Okay. Did I answer the question? I forgot. I forgot. Boy, I got off on a tangent there. I I, <laughs> what was the question? Where was Babylon? Where was Babylon? Yes, I did answer.
answer that question. Here it looks like the old Babylon encompasses part of Iran and part of Iraq. The Babylonian Empire right. did. The That's actual true. city is where Baghdad is. Number two, on your, I've numbered the little rows for you so we can all stay together. But number two is the world is divided into ten kingdoms, which we knew from the visions of the statue and from the visions of the, the beasts with the horns, right? There were ten toes, there were ten horns, ten kings. So we know that this federated world government divides the world up into ten regions, ten kingdoms. Then AC stands for Antichrist, number three. The Antichrist rises to power during the time of the ten kings. We know that also from uh, more than one of the visions that refer to a a little horn coming up, right? And uh, during the time of the ten kings. So row four is where Daniel chapter 11 picks up. And this is where... I, I interpret Daniel to consistently say that the Antichrist comes from one of the four divisions of the Greek Empire. And I believe it says specifically Syria. All right. And, and here's why. The, in Daniel chapter 8 verse 9 says, Out of one of them, and it's referring to the four horns of the Greek Empire, came forth a rather small horn. Okay. In the 23rd verse of that same vision when they're talking about they're doing the interpretation it says in the latter period of the rule of the four horns of the Greek empire um, when transgressors have run their course a king will arise okay I think that that anytime you see those little brackets in my handout it means I've just given there was some pronoun there like he him or them and I've just given you what the subject was all right Um, that's an editorial clarification But one of the things about verse 23 is that I think the key to the timing is when the transgressors have run their course. I think that places that king at the time of the end. Okay. So even though that Greek empire itself has gone away as such, the the power base still exists in the world today. And, and so this horn is going to come out, up out of one of those four parts of the Greek Empire. And in fact, in one of these visions, uh, the one about the judgment and the Ancient of Days, there is a discussion in there about the fact that those, even though the you know, fourth beast gets destroyed and his power and dominion taken away, they take away the dominion of all of the... the um, kingdoms there is a little blurb in there saying that when the dominion of these previous kingdoms the Babylonian the the Medes and Persians and the Greeks were taken away they were allowed to exist for a time to continue to exist so you know presumably they continue to exist within the context of the Roman or last fourth kingdom until all of them are crushed and blown away all right so that's how I read those and interpret those prophecies. Daniel 11.21. Let's look at that. It says, He will be succeeded by a contemptible person. He, in this case, is the king of the north. All right? We've been reading. If you back up, we've been reading about the king of the north and how he stumbles and falls and is seen no more. And then his successor sends out a tax collector to gather money. And in a few years, he's destroyed. And then he's succeeded by a contemptible person. That verse, that phrase, I believe, pinpoints the Antichrist as coming from the, quote, power base of the kings of the north. 
out of that Syrian, which would have been the Syrian part of the Greek Empire. He's a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Now let's just stop there because that one verse has a lot of stuff in it. First it tells us where the Antichrist power base comes from within the fourth kingdom. Then on row five we know that the Antichrist starts out small because of all this whole small horns, a little horn, a rather small horn. But we also know he doesn't look like a king at first. Because in chapter 7, verse 24, it says he will be different from the previous kings. He won't look the same to people. We also know from Daniel 11:21 that we just read that, that when he rises to power... That he does not have the honor of kingship at that point. Okay, on whom, on whom the honor of kingship has not been confirmed, conferred. So I take that my you know personal guess would be that he is an official of state, a representative of one of these kings. Probably I would think the most powerful of the ten. On row six, we know that Antichrist rises to power in a time of peace. That's what it said in verse 21. He will come in a time of tranquility. And I put in another scripture reference for you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 3, that says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. And also, we know he comes in a time of relative peace because Daniel chapter 8, verse 25 tells us, he will destroy many while they are at ease. Now, row seven, the Antichrist seizes power by intrigue rather than by force at first. But his power quickly becomes overwhelming. Okay, he starts out small, he grows big in a hurry. There's a whole ton of prophecy in Daniel about that. Uh, verse 23 of chapter 8 tells us he, he will be skilled in intrigue. Goes on to tell us his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. All right. Typically, that that is interpreted to mean he derives his power from Satan. That is true. That is a true statement. However, I think what it means here is that he initially derives his power from one of these other kings. I think he is an authorized representative of one of these other guys. That's what I'm reading when I read this. It goes on to say through his shrewdness. He will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. We know that three of the first horns, three of the world rulers were pulled out by the roots in front of him. So we know that he pretty quickly um, becomes powerful enough to completely unseat three of the rulers. Daniel 9:26 says the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood even to the end there will be war desolations are determined so this begins to talk about the just overwhelming power okay that that he ultimately garners to himself uh, and then in 8 uh, verse 10 he remember he it talks about how he grows up to the host of heaven and causes some of the host to fall to earth and get trampled so he is so powerful that he even has influence spiritual influence in in the heavenly realm and is able to to 
draw, tempt, draw, by his very, how much power he has, tempts some of those angels okay, and spiritual beings to join him, to think he has a chance. Okay, It's, it's, it's going to be pretty scary. So let's read in um, Daniel 21 and uh, verses 21 and 22 what it says about him. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Then my, my translation says then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. If you look at the Hebrew, it doesn't really say overwhelming army. And so I've. I've done a translation for you here on your handout and given you the actual, in the brackets, the actual meanings of the Hebrew words that were actually used. And you get a a little bit different sense when you read it. Let's read the interpretation. It says, and with the might, power, strength of a deluge, they shall be completely conquered, washed away before him and shall be crushed. Yea, also the leader, ruler of the Confederacy League covenant. Okay. So it doesn't say who they is. The translation here translated they as an overwhelming army. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Okay. I, I think that that could just as easily mean the three kings. Okay. I don't think it necessarily means military. It could be political. Just as e- it could be economic. It could be any kind of power. All right. The Bible as far as I can tell from the Hebrew, does not say military there. And the other thing is in verse 22 where it's translated a prince of the covenant. Very often that is used to justify interpreting this verse as applying to Antiochus Epiphanes because one of the very first things he did was get rid of the high priest, who's another title for him as prince of the covenant, and put his brother in as high priest. He got rid of Onias and put Jason in as high priest and then went to Menelaus. I don't think that's what it's talking about here at all. There is another interpretation that says, well, he's really, he's talking about, you know, the covenant with the many and, and whoever did that with him. And that would have been the high priest if you think that was between the Jews and the Antichrist. That's another interpretation. But if you take that interpretation, these verses are out of order. The events don't work out in order. So if you take this as literally as history written in advance in order, just like all the rest of the chapter was, you know, then you have to say, well, the Antichrist at this point, the Antichrist hasn't made that covenant yet. So I think the correct interpretation is that this whole verse 22 is talking about the period of time when the Antichrist uproots those three kings in front of him. And that one of them is the leader of the ten kings, the prince of the, the leader of the ruler of the confederacy. That's one of the reasons I think it is likely that the Antichrist himself was somewhere within that particular ruler's power base. What do you, uh, mine, um, this probably goes back to Hebrew, uh, which says the prince of the covenant. Mm-hmm. The covenant. See, the covenant could also be translated just as accurately as confederacy or league. Okay. And that's how I think it should be translated. Okay. And, and instead of prince, it should be leader or ruler. Mm-hmm. It's, it, I think it's referring to the fact that it's a federated world government. Okay. 
and some somebody's got to be sitting at the, somebody's chairman of the board. <laughs> okay, it, it's like the leader of the UN count, you know council is it, you know like Kofi Annan or you know it's, it's somebody's the main guy, even if for a, a short period and it's elected or whatever. I think that's what it's talking about here, and I think he's one of the three horns that get uprooted. I think I think that that word covenant has been should be interpreted league or confederacy in this particular place and then it starts to make more sense chronologically with what's going on because the very next thing that happens is the antichrist makes a covenant for seven years i think tranquility will continue for the first three and a half years more or less as he expands his power base southward and eastward let's look at how we know all that First off, we already knew from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that the Antichrist makes a firm covenant with the many for one week. We know from chapter 8, verse 9, that he grows exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. Now, look at your map. If he comes out of Syria, what's south of him? Jordan and Israel and Iraq, if you're talking southeast, Saudi Arabia is south of him. What's, uh, and certainly the beautiful land is Israel, that's south of him. What's east of him? Iraq, Iran. What are Iraq, Iran, and Saudi Arabia and Jordan and all those guys famous for? Oil. Big, big money. Okay, so if oil continues to be the, you know, driver of the world economy, and this is the very end time that we're living in, and if the Antichrist rises out of the power base somewhere in the Syrian area, that makes very much sense that he would, if he was going to expand, would he go to Turkey? I don't think so. Okay. Now he might just out of power greed, but the first move he's going to make is for the economics, and that's going to be to the south and to the east, just as it's prophesied in Daniel chapter eight, verse nine. Now let's look and see what it says in verses 23 and 24 in in chapter 11. Now we've 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 just read in chapter 22 how he destroyed the ruler of the confederacy, right? Then it says, after coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. With on, and with only a few people, he will rise to power. That is the covenant with the many. Okay, that alliance. I think his uprooting those three kings is, is, is what is the catalyst that causes the reason for having this covenant with the many. Okay, it's, it's kind of like Hitler invading, invading Poland. You know, it, it, it's... It's a, it's a catalyst calling the world to action. So I think the alliance in verse 23 is the covenant with the many. And we know that from the beginning, he does not intend to honor that covenant. But he doesn't come right out and say so at first. Then listen. Now, keep in mind as we read verse 24, 23 and 24, the geography of moving to the south and to the east. He, with only a few people, he will rise to power. So he's doing this relatively secretly, okay? 
um, kind of behind the scenes. Perhaps most of the people in the world may not be aware of what's going on behind closed doors. And then when the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. So I think that's talking about how he takes over economically and has the ability to grant money and power to whomever he wishes. This whole area that it says he goes into is, is right now where our, the center of the world economy. I think that, that, no, I, I think that the only for a time is a reminder, as we've, we've seen kind of scattered through all the prophecies, there are verses throughout here that say that if these days were not cut short, nobody would be left standing. That the time of the Antichrist is absolutely, his days are numbered. And one of the things that we see in Daniel is he actually tells us how many days he's got. So let's look at um, row nine. The Antichrist reneges after three and a half years, ushering in the great tribulation for the saints and a period of warfare for the world. Okay. And you could kind of see this warfare coming up as you approach the midpoint of the seven years. I don't think all of a sudden war is going to start. I think that as his power base becomes more and more secure, he will begin to take the gloves off. All right. And begin to take things more militarily with military force than he does with intrigue. And, you, and, and we'll see that conversion here in the very next part of uh, chapter 11 when we when we get there. But we know from Daniel chapter nine, verse 27, that in the middle of the week, that is three and a half years into the, the, the last seven years of the world, the Antichrist will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. We know from chapter 7, verse 25, he will wear down the saints and they will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. That's three and a half years. And one of the, the really interesting verses that is next has to do with the prophecy that comes in verses 25 through 30. Let's read 25 through 30 in chapter 11. See what he does. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, who historically, in the context of this chapter, has been Egypt. Now, it's greater Egypt. It's not just Egypt as we know it. It's Egypt, including Saudi Arabia, Arabia and, you know, the parts that used to be Egypt. And by this time, the south may actually include, you know, all of Africa. Who knows how they're going to divide up the ten kingdoms at that point? But all we know is it's south. Okay. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army. But he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. The king of the south has a big enough army to stand against the Antichrist. But, he, but he's betrayed from inside. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. This is the king of the south. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings, however, see, he, he, this next verse tells us that the, there's still a power base in the south because the Antichrist doesn't just completely ignore the king of the south. They actually sit down at a bargaining table together. 
The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other. But to no avail. That's a big surprise, huh? (laughs) But to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. So let's look at that for a minute. Isaiah chapter 19 verse 4. I've put in an uh, excerpt for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the whole little passage. It's just four, four verses to you. That is a prophecy in Isaiah concerning Egypt. That has, this prophecy has not been fulfilled. And I believe that this is when this prophecy gets fulfilled. An oracle concerning Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him. The hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Now, that, you know, seems to be very close to what these verses in in chapter 11 are saying, that it's an internal betrayal and division that causes the fall of the king of the south. The Egyptians will lose heart. And I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the God Almighty. I think that is explaining in a little more detail what Daniel is hearing here in chapter 11. This is also... Verse 27 of chapter 11 is one of the places where the prophecy does not fit, Antiochus Epiphanes, where it says the two kings, after this big battle, the two kings sit down together at a table and lie to each other. You know, you get kind of the, the sense and the fact that, that, that the, the king of the north leaves with great plunder. You get the sense that this is a, a table of truce, ceasefire, okay, end of hostilities, King of the South is in a weaker position. He has to, you know, give a lot of money and whatever to the King of the North. But the King of the South is still king. Okay? There still is a South. That was not at all the case when Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Egypt. Antiochus Epiphanes took captive the king of Egypt, the Ptolemy. The Ptolemy was a child king. And by the time Antiochus Epiphanes got there, he may have been in his early 20s. But he was not in any way able to sit at a bargaining table and bargain with Antiochus Epiphanes and tell him lies. It didn't happen that way. In fact, um, we're going to read some more in a little bit about what, about what happens in verse 30. Because what happens in 29, let's read 29 and 30 in chapter 11. At the appointed time, he, that is the Antichrist, the king of the north, will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands, and actually the word in Hebrew is not western coastlands. The, the, the Hebrew says Kittim, which is the name of Cyprus. Okay, so it really says ships of Cyprus will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So just talking about the military stuff for a second, it sounds like... The Antichrist invades the south, basically wins, 
They have their peace treaty. He goes back home with a lot of plunder. It says that apparently Israel sides with the king of the south. Because when the Antichrist goes home, he is mad as he can be at, the, at Israel, at the, quote, holy covenant. All right. And he intends to do something about those guys. Now, that is a parallel with Antiochus Epiphanes, but I think it's talking about the Antichrist. And so the second time the Antichrist invades the South, he's planning to finish the job. Okay, If he had succeeded the first time, there would be no need to invade the second time. Okay, So clearly there, the king of the South continued to rule. Well, the Antichrist comes back. He wants to finish the job. I don't know whether the king of the South you know, didn't fulfill the terms of the peace treaty. I don't know what the deal was. But this time... Israel again sides with the king of the south because it says he's even more angry with the whole people of the holy with the holy covenant when he's when he is repelled this time and he goes back and he starts and he basically vows to get rid of them the only thing that stops the antichrist from taking over the south is a navy that comes from Cyprus now, if you look at Cyprus, Cyprus is a little island. Well, it's a big island. It's a big island out in the Mediterranean off the shore of Israel. There are no naval bases there. I checked. There are two United Kingdom military bases, but one is an Air Force base and one is essentially the equivalent of an Army base. There's no naval, big naval, naval harbor there. And I asked my husband, who served on an aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean, and he said, yeah, when they, went, you know, when they, had, when they were near Cyprus, they had to stand off. In order to to um, take you know smaller boats into Cyprus, there is no place to get a big navy in there. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't build one. That you know I, I don't know why the Bible says they come from Cyprus, but I absolutely believe it. I, I'm not going to reinterpret it to say Western coastlands, okay? And it and it could be that this refers to ships that are stationed off the coast of Cyprus. Okay, because of the move, military movement of the Antichrist down into the south. That's what we do. Every time there's some big, huge problem, we send our aircraft carriers that are based in Spain directly over there. Now, and, and they may actually base their operations from Cyprus. But what this says is that Navy turns the Antichrist back and causes him to lose heart and stop his campaign. That is not what happened to Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, yes, the Romans did sail to Egypt, but the meeting with the Romans in Antiochus Epiphanes occurred on land near Alexandria. The Roman consul, whose name was Gaius, Popilius, Slainus, something like that. Anyway, he meets Antiochus Epiphanes on land. He hands Antiochus Epiphanes the decree of the Roman Senate that says, give Egypt back to the Egyptians. Antiochus Epiphanes says, well, can I think about this for a little while? And, and Lainus says, I don't think so. And he draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus Epiphanes and says, before you step out of that circle, you make up your mind. (laughs) That does not sound like a naval battle to me. The uh, next thing that happens is the Antichrist is furious with Israel. So on row 10, the Antichrist stops the daily sacrifices to God, desecrates the temple, sets up the abomination that causes desolation. Um, we've read about this several places in Daniel. In, in chapter 8, verse 11, uh, it says, It removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was torn down. 
um, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Jesus said, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Because that marks the beginning of the Great Tribulation. That's the midway point in the seven years. So that is very consistent chronologically with what chapter 11 tells us. It's just giving us more information. Look at verse 31. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Row 11. The Antichrist sets himself up as God, but he will be opposed by the true believers, many of whom will be martyred. This talks about, is talked about in Daniel chapter 8, verse 11, where it says this little horn even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. In verse 25, he will magnify himself in his heart. He will even oppose the prince of princes. And in the vision in 7, verse 8, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So all of that is consistent with these verses in chapter 11 that tell us the Antichrist by smooth words, by the lure of his wealth, of his power, of whatever superior knowledge he has that causes him to have such power. I don't know whether it's a knowledge of, of um, disease, you know, how to control disease. You know, I don't know what he has that causes this great big power. But, and what this says is he takes it to the point, he is so silver-tongued, he convinces people to worship him. He convinces people he is God. And we're going to find out kind of how and why in Revelation. But one of the reasons is because he has a sidekick who can do miracles. Okay. Another reason is because he is killed and is resurrected. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, he, he, he does a whole lot of things that look godly. You know, that takes me back to once saved, always saved. If he can fold them. And you mentioned way back here um, about the host. Mm-hmm. Being God. trampled. Mm-hmm. So if he can even fool the angels, this is the end of the, this week's lesson. There's about 10 minutes more on the tape that recorded discussion the class had as a result of the deception that the Antichrist will play on the world, on believers and unbelievers alike. And we talked some about the concept of once saved, always saved, versus the whole concept of there being such a thing as apostasy, where people can fall away from the faith. If you wish to listen to that discussion, I have left it on the tape, but if you're you know, just interested in the uh, verse-by-verse study of Daniel, uh, you can turn the, the tape off at this point. Uh, and the, the whole once saved, always saved, you know, controversy, you'll have to think through in light of what you're learning and seeing. 
I personally believe we have choices and we continue to have choices. Our whole entire life we have choices. It's apostasy. That word wouldn't exist if you couldn't fall away from a faith. You know, there's just a lot of stuff in the Bible that talks about the fact that people can choose. I believe that we are seeing scripture references in Daniel that talk about the fact that history has been recorded in advance. God already knows what choices we make. He does not take the choice away, but he knows what our ultimate choice will be. Because ultimately, it's a yes or a no to God. And the people that choose yes have their name written down. These are the ones that chose yes. These are the ones that chose no. Even though it hadn't happened yet. Okay. God is outside of time. We have to remember not to look at him from a chronological point of view. So if God already has this list of the people that chose yes and the people that chose no. He is able to use both sets of people for his glory and for his purpose. And when you get to verses about how God like hardens Pharaoh's heart and makes him, you know, do terrible things for God's glory, you have to read those kinds of verses in the context of God already knows what his choice was. His choice was made. Okay. And and when you read things like the book of Job, God knows what Job's choice was. Okay. And so even though Job went through just horrible horrific things he what he did magnified God that is the purpose for our existence there is no other reason for our existence than to magnify God many places it says many people who who have said yes yes to Christ I mean, mm-hmm. you know some of them said yes but they really didn't accept because when they see people fall away, they say, well, they weren't really saved to start with. Well, I don't totally believe true. that. Okay, but I mean, I do believe that people say that they're Christians and they aren't. Yeah. You know, I, I do believe that they're, you have to go back to the, go back to the parable that Jesus gave us about the seeds. If those, those seeds all had the, you know, the same potential as a seed. Okay. Some of them had a harder road to hoe than others. Forgive the pun. <laughs> some of them were in a more nurturing environment than others. Okay, But some of them took root, truly took root, and then died. Okay, And, and that one parable, I think, has a lot to say about the once saved, always saved doctrine. The bottom line is only God knows your heart and whether you've chosen to follow him or not. And, and, you know, we can argue all day long, but the deal is God knows whether you've chosen him or not. And once you've chosen him, you are secure in him. Absolutely. It's, it's like... going to snatch you away no. from him. It says... That's right. Nothing, no power on earth can separate you from the love of Christ. Absolutely nothing. Well, and I think Lenora's point is well taken that we must have that assurance and that hope and that faith. You know, if somebody says, who in this room absolutely knows beyond a shadow of a doubt they're going to heaven, I want every one of your hands to go up because you know that. 
you know without a doubt you are going to heaven. And you're not to live in fear. I mean, yeah. fear is not from God. That's right. We probably can stop here. We will finish Daniel next week.